listening to a podcast from The National. I'm about to describe a video taken this week in eastern Ghouta. Aid workers are carrying a civilian. He's covered in blood. Others are helping. God help us, we hear in Arabic. I'm coming with you. They're close to a van to take him to a hospital. They get to the van, shut the door, and then... Another bomb. Are you okay? Are you okay? Asks the man filming the scene. They regroup and the van starts to move along. This is a common scene in the rebel-held Syrian zone. In between bombs, aid workers do all they can to save lives. Some of the aid comes from abroad and some, such as the white helmets helping this man, are civil workers. So how do humanitarian workers manage against the swelling tide of civil war? This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm Mina al and today we talk to a senior UN official about his frustrations with world leaders in helping Syrians. And later, we talk about the significance of Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's international tour. Panos Mumtesis is the UN's humanitarian coordinator for Syria. He was in Dubai for this week's International Humanitarian and Development Aid Conference. I asked him on Tuesday to describe the situation. Since the first aid convoy reached eastern Ghouta on February the 14th, what are the challenges for civilians and aid workers trapped inside? Well, yesterday's convoy, uh, we managed to take assistance for 27,000 people out of the 400,000 that are live there. Uh, and out of 46 convoys, only 32 offloaded. So there was shelling, there was insecurity in the middle of it. And at the end, 14 convoys, 14 trucks came back full without even managing to offload uh, as it was. So this is highly frustrating. To take a convoy into the besieged area, we ask authorization from the government of Syria to be able to allow them in. And of course, we inform all the parties inside and ask their facilitation and cooperation to allow us to bring the assistance inside. Uh, in uh, At the moment, Isruta is one of many locations. So there is a total of uh, 2.9 million people who are in besieged or hard to reach areas in multiple locations throughout Syria who are in desperate need for assistance, where we haven't been able to provide assistance. And there were reports of trauma kits and insulin being taken out of these um, of, the, of, the, of the aid uh, uh, shipments. Um, what, why did that happen? I mean, what was the reason behind that? According to the World Health Organization, uh, 75% of the medicament supplies that were on the convoy were taken out by the government of Syria, so we really couldn't go in. Uh, sadly, this is not the first time. Throughout 2017, uh, we, this is a systematic uh, request we have from the government of Syria to take out uh, ter- trauma kits, surgical tray kits, uh, uh, insulin and other medicaments that they do not allow us to take in cross-line convoys. For us, this is highly, uh, highly frustrating because uh, a trauma kit, surgical surprise, can save lives. 
and is desperately needed by the medical teams, in particular in Ghouta, and in particular at this very moment, after almost two weeks now on intensive bombing and, 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 a, and a really a, a difficult situation where there is a, a high number of, of medical cases. We're talking about children, women, elderly people who, if they have this material, lives, lives can be saved. Uh, what are the challenges that aid workers that manage to get inside of Eastern Ghouta, what challenges do they face? Uh, on a daily basis? Well, the, the first challenge is access to get the permission to go inside, which requires government of Syria, all parties to facilitate and give the permission to, to go inside. Uh, the logistics going through multiple checkpoints, uh, long hours. The deconfliction is very important that if a convoy takes place, uh, that there is no hostilities taking place, there is no aerial bombing, and, or, or you know, because that's the safety of the relief workers, is the safety of the staff who put their life at risk to be able to reach people in these uh, extreme situations uh, where they are. So, and of course, uh, the other challenge is that uh, managing expectations, because when you go inside, uh, people are frustrated. Of course, they need food, medical supplies, but most importantly, they need protection, they need safety, they need, and that's something that is very difficult because it depends on the political will of the parties, of everybody, to be able to ensure that the protection of civilians, protection and, and, and respect for health facilities, for infrastructure, is in place. That's the biggest issue. What is the reason for the failure for the protection of the civilians? Well, I mean, as humanitarian workers, of course, we were ready to go to all locations, but clearly it's not the humanitarian aid that it will solve what is, in essence, a political issue. Uh, we feel, as humanitarians, that there is a failure of international diplomacy, of humanitarian diplomacy, of the ability of the Security Council members, of the ability of us as an international community in these extreme situations to intervene, to intervene and to bring an end to people suffering. To It's heartbreaking every morning to, to look at the pictures of children, dead bodies, to look at the extreme suffering, at suffering that is beyond words to describe, that people go through it, and that this goes day after day. And the only thing that happens is we see more and more pictures, more and more video, and it continues business as usual. The people ask us, why is the world failing us? Why is there not, uh, uh, we don't see a robust action? And we ask ourselves, what is it that would mobilize public opinion? What is it that would mobilize political conscience to do the right thing that we haven't seen yet? The Syrian crisis now is about to enter its eighth year. It's been seven years of a relentless fighting, a relentless security situation where half the population is displaced, five and a half million people are refugees in the, in the neighboring countries, huge humanitarian needs. Uh, we have uh, 13 million people in need, 5.6 million people in acute needs. But these are all numbers. I mean, we've gone beyond um, uh, words to be able to describe the extremity of the situation on the ground. Can civilians who want to get out get out of Eastern Ghouta? And what happens when they do get out? Freedom of movement of people must be respected by all sides, by really by all parties. If somebody wants to leave, they should freely be able to do that. Uh, or if they don't want to leave, also that's, it has to be a free choice, what people really feel most comfortable in terms of doing. So far, we haven't seen really any big movement of people leaving out um, uh, from Izruta. And it's, I mean, most civilians in Izruta at the moment are hiding in basements, uh, are, are hiding in places where 
an intensive air uh, and ground uh, military offensive is taking place and uh, civilians are really scared. People are scared. They try to hide as much as they can while they have very little food. In many places water is also cut out. Markets are closed. Health facilities have been destroyed. Uh, if somebody gets injured, uh, they are scared to take that person even to a clinic because uh, I've heard a parent say, well, maybe if we take our child, maybe me and my husband will both attacked and killed on the way. So they tried to weigh every time can, what can they do locally and what, how to best respond to this uh, extreme situation. The Russians proposed for a humanitarian corridor. Uh, I mean, uh, do you think the proposal is a cynical ploy by the Russians? I mean, has it, I mean when it comes into proposal, will it actually result? Well, the Russian Federation proposed a corridor for five hours. From our perspective, five hours is hugely insufficient to be able to bring trucks and humanitarian assistance to deliver to Izruta. Uh, more time is needed. Uh, the biggest frustration is that uh, the Russian Federation, like all 15 other members of the Security Council, voted for a 30-day ceasefire in all locations, not just Izruta, but in Idlib, in Afrin, in, in all locations to, for us to be able to bring assistance to. We're now several days after the Security Council resolution, and it hasn't been applied. To make a Security Council resolution meaningful, it has to be respected, it has to be applied. The, we continue to see Izruta being hell on earth, an extreme situation where people go through difficulties without an application of the basic uh, respect uh, of protection of civilians and human dignity. No, I mean, there's also been um, appeals by doctors within Eastern Ghouta to, uh, to, to call for international observers to come and monitor the deliverance of aid and the evacuations of medical evacuations. Is this something on the table for the United Nations? Do you see this as a realistic sort of plan? Well, as United Nations, we are ready to facilitate the medical evacuations. We are there on the ground. Uh, our offices are within 10 miles from Izruta, uh, working with the World Health Organization, with medical NGOs, including uh, NGOs uh, inside the Syrian Arab Red Crescent uh, health teams. We are ready to facilitate a medical triage and, and really to be able to bring out people who are in need. Uh, so it's not, it's really a question of political will and authorization to, to do so, uh, rather than anything else. Is there going to be any hope on the horizon anytime soon for the civilians, of the Syrian civilians? The, this is the key question. I mean, the conflict has been going on now for seven years. Uh, it feels as if no amount of suffering, killing, uh, displacement, uh, news is able to mobilize the public opinion. We have not heard yet the word is enough is enough. On the contrary, what we see more on the ground is an escalation of the offensive, an escalation of the suffering, more and more bombs every day, more and more besiegement, restrictions, and inability to help people in need. So that really creates a huge frustration on our side because we're just down the road from Izruta. We're really, it's a matter of 20, 30 minutes drive and you can bring everything that is needed to help people who are otherwise are dying literally every day and an extreme suffering of civilians. So on our side, we do say enough is enough. Really, it's a time to 
to, to first of all apply the Security Council resolution on 30 days of cessation of hostilities to allow us to bring in assistance in all locations, to take out medical cases and really to move to a process of peace and coexistence. Uh, I think the people of Syria have suffered a lot. It's the civilians who pay the price. It's the civilians who find themselves caught up in the situations. It is unacceptable that several buildings in Isguta now have become the graveyard of entire families. When the buildings are bombed and collapsed, basically the dead bodies stay behind. And, and this is not just one or two, it's now multiple in several locations where we see entire neighborhoods having been bulldozed. Of course, we all feel uh, sympathetic towards the war on terror, but would the war on terror, the war on terror should not justify uh, civilians paying a heavy toll. It should not justify entire cities or neighborhoods being bulldozed to zero for the sake of the war on terror. I think different ways have to be done, identified to move, to advance on a, on a political process, on a process to, to bring peace and stability without the civilians and in cities being bulldozed. My, my final question, I mean with the continuation of regime bombardment, do you think that Eastern Ghouta will turn into another Aleppo? Well, we very much hope that we will not see the same scenario in Isruta as we saw in East Aleppo, where it was a massive displacement, it was a massive suffering, and it was a massive bombing and bulldozing, you know, entire neighborhoods in uh, in East Aleppo. So every effort has to be made to find a peaceful solution. We strongly, uh, you know, oppose the this use of excessive uh, military offensive to resolve an issue that has to be resolved through peaceful means to avoid suffering of civilians. At the moment, within Syria, there is multiple fronts. You have Izruta, there is Idlib, there is Afrin, uh, there is in Rukban in the south, of course, in Raqqa, in Derezor, there are multiple locations where we're still seeing, we're still in emergency mode, we're still seeing thousands, actually millions of people are, more than 6.5 million people are internally displaced, more than 5.5 million people are refugees, uh, half the, facility, the health facilities in Syria are destructed, so it's really time to move to a phase of peace, of coexistence, of reconciliation, of really turning a new page, and that hasn't happened yet. The political process in Geneva is, is uh, about to resume with the um, Special Envoy Mr. de Mistura. Uh, we very much hope to see a peaceful solution uh, that will, first of all, uh, allow us, enable us as humanitarians to have better access and to help the people in the, in the situations where they are. So peace has to be the only way forward. Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman has begun a high-profile working trip to the UK. He is meeting with the Queen and government officials to seal a new strategic partnership. The three-day visit will focus on security and defence ties. Damien McIlroy, the National's London Bureau Chief, is closely following the developments. He spoke to me about the importance of the Crown Prince's tour. They're very symbolic, um, and there's a lot that goes into them. There's a lot riding on them. Um, people here um, in the government, for example, are very pleased that this first trip, essentially, first big trip that he's made abroad since becoming um, Crown Prince last year, um, has been to here, and that it is a substantial visit. There's lots of meetings with his government counterparts. There is a big 
royal component to it, which is very symbolic. And there is a big economic and financial component with lots of uh, separate events or side events in the City of London talking about all sorts of things, including bond financing, but also the flotation of Aramco. Right. And what are we going to expect from his visit to London? Is there going to be any deals um, announced or any agreements? Well, the headline figure, according to the foreign minister, is that there will be um, 100 billion worth of deals over probably about a decade. Um, I think what's more important in terms of um, what's happening here than the actual figures is a lot of the reforms in Saudi Arabia are very um, aligned with the sort of um, businesses, the sort of interest, the the kind of um, activity that uh, Britain specialises in. So there's, you know, even something like allowing the um, opening up of the cinema uh, sector and uh, approving new cinemas is something that is plays to Britain's strengths because, you know, it is a creative hub. And um, there is great interest here from that point of view. There's also great interest in helping the Saudi government build its its capacity to roll out these reforms. So lots of work on how officials can take forward these initiatives, how they can prepare the ground, how they can regulate properly. All those things are, are areas in which there is definitely a British expertise. And so therefore... They want to get in close into this um, Vision 2030, and they want to really enable it. And um, they think they have a fairly unique um, opportunity to help the Saudi government um, as it seeks to you know, diversify away from a, a carbon-based economy. Yeah, and um, Prince uh, Mohammed bin Salman is also planning to visit Washington uh, next week. Is there going to, is is the agenda going to be quite similar to what he's going to be sort of undergoing in in the UK? I think you'll have quite a different tone in Washington. I think it it will be more overtly political. It, some of those political themes will play out on a grander scale. Um and there won't be so much of the technical issues. There won't be so much of the the kind of financing because Essentially, there is a geographic imperative here, which is London is closer to the region. Um, London is the most, the most developed um, financial centre um, close to the region that it, that the region accesses, and so there is there is a much more um, transactional undertow to um, what's happening here, as well as as that thing that I say that you know the government is really trying to interact. In in a in a very detailed way, and I think in America you you'll, you'll see the greater themes. Um, you'll see the big issues come into play, such as you know the um, peace initiative. Um, will the Trump administration finally roll out something? That's not to say that there won't be deals in um, Washington. That there obviously will be, and there's a great you know deal of economic cooperation between America and Saudi Arabia and. Um, they are the first allies of of um, 
Saudi Arabia and its its oil economy as well. But um, I think when when he when he is in Washington and when he is in in America, it'll it'll be much more about the grand strategic openings that his um, his rise has has offered up. Yes, and there was also Britain launched a UK-Saudi Strategic Partnership Council. I mean, how important is this development in strengthening the international support for the Kingdom's 2030 vision? Um, From a London standpoint, it's very important. Um, It gives um, that initiative uh, strength in depth. So it allows the rollout to be properly planned. It allows... um, the Saudis to uh, find a way to build up how they are going to um, administer this, how the um, uh, civil service in Saudi Arabia and how the officials in Saudi Arabia can cope with this change. But also it it gives a platform for um, private companies to get involved. It gives a platform for planning. And um, so this is seen as something that could actually be uh, an enormously strong platform that allows um, this rollout of Vision 2030 to really um, operate effectively and quickly and on, on a broad scale that, you know, gets buy-in from, from the Saudi Arabian population and that allows people in Saudi Arabia to see that the change is real. Yes, and you've mentioned before that the kingdom has undergone sweeping changes since King, King Salman came to power three years ago, announcing major economic reforms, crackdown on corruption, and allowing uh, women more rights. How are the kingdom's reforms perceived in the world today? Well, they're seen as an enormous change. Um, they're seen as something that um, takes the country from one way of life to another. There is, you know, um, one anecdote that rattles around in London, basically saying that um, the economic reforms are, in fact, a kind of social revolution in disguise. And um, that aspect of how Saudi Arabia is changing, how maybe a lot of that those changes were pent up uh, previously, and now the, the, the stuff that doesn't make sense is being eliminated and um you know people are being able to take up opportunities in their lives in their lives and they are being allowed to play a um full role in within the society and um you know uh, people in Europe who where you know there is a obviously a european lifestyle um see that as as something logical to do and they're enormously sympathetic with it and they want to see it um, happen in the best possible way. Uh, There are obviously um, lots of counterpoints to that. Um, People who um, worry about, you know, is this this really happening as, um, as portrayed or is it more public relations than anything else? And the worries about, you know, do uh, people lose out in the process? So, um, you know, the, it is controversial. There's no getting away from that. But it is, it is change that, for the most part, people are welcoming. Thanks to Panos Mumtazis and Damien McIlroy. Thanks also to Kevin Jeffers for producing it. The audio heard at the beginning of the show was provided by Reuters. Beyond the Headlines is on Apple Podcast or your favorite app. 
Aimina El Darubi. Thank you for listening and goodbye.